1: In the early days of our friendship, I was amazed by Mala Gwankar, then founding partner of Lone Pine Capital. How could this high achieving woman be so uniquely calm, thoughtful, and serene? We went to dinner in her home in Notting Hill. Entering this traditional London house, we were surrounded by the best of brave and beautiful contemporary art and furniture. When we went down to dinner, there she was, Mala in the kitchen, apron on, finishing the curries, the rice the vegetables, and the desserts she had cooked for us all. I asked her over dinner what she was doing. She spoke about her work in public health at Harvard and with Atul Gwande, a book of short stories she had just published, the immersive theater piece she was doing with David Byrne, and a high-risk skiing adventure she'd just come back from with her two sons. Today, ten years later, she is founder of Circo Capital, the largest ever fund run by a woman. Okay, so Mala, you chose, of all the recipes, all our books, pistachio cake. And you made it sound as if, like, don't you know that I want to do pistachio cake? So here we go with pistachio cake, read
2: by Mala. So yes, pistachio cake, my very favorite. I must have made it about 100 times. 270 grams of unsalted butter, one lemon, one vanilla pod, 100 grams of blanched almonds, 120 grams pistachios, 250 grams of castor sugar, four eggs, organic, 40 grams plain flour, one lemon, 60 grams of pistachios, 50 grams of castor sugar. Preheat the oven to 150 degrees centigrade. Line a loaf tin and grease with 20 grams of the butter. Soften the remaining butter. Grate the lemon peel. Split the vanilla pod and scrape the seeds. Grind the almonds and pistachios together. Beat the butter and the sugar until light and the eggs, one at a time. Add the zest and vanilla seeds. Fold in the nuts and sieve in the flour. Spoon the mixture into the tin and bake for 45 minutes. The cake is ready when a skewer comes out clean. Leave to cool in the tin. For the topping, grate the lemon peel and squeeze the juice. Have the pistachios. Mix the lemon juice with the sugar. Boil until thick. Then add the zest. Stir in the pistachios and pour over the cake. Delicious for breakfast with a coffee or as a dessert with creme fraiche. Or anytime. Or anytime. We have in some. That
1: made me want to have it. But I was interested because I always think of you with the incredible chutneys and with the um, curries and the food that you made. And you chose a cake. Do you like to
2: bake? I feel cake? like to be a really good pastry right. chef, certainly in the Western tradition, you have to. it's about precision. And I'm mm. terrible with precision. I'm oh, the are kind you? of person who doesn't oh, I thought yeah, you were going like, to say okay, a little bit of sour, a little bit sweet. So I'm terrible at cakes. Yeah. And I felt that this was one of the few recipes I could actually make. And there I was, sort of, you know, working mom, two young boys yeah. with insatiable sort of appetites, it seemed, for mm. pretty much anything. Uh, and this just seemed just wonderful. It was yeah. just just a beautiful, lovely cake. I must admit, though, Ruthie, I did I did shift it around. A oh, bit. tell me. A great recipe is something that you can build on, yeah, right? Like definitely. like like any creative, beautiful thing. And so, what I did was I, you know, I did grow up in South India, so I mm. kind of added. Let's see what it, I did, all kinds of things. I mm. kept the vanilla,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I added loads of cloves Cloves. and cinnamon so and you cardamom. Ground,
1: ground, oh, so you'd you ground them together.
2: I pounded then, all of those up
1: and put them in the cake. I put itself. them in the
2: cake. Mm. I didn't put the topping, mm. okay. so it was a bit of a rush, but yeah. that and that just you know, there's a lot of mm. I mean, you know this probably, mm. but you know, cinnamon can replace and yeah. it did in the medieval yeah. times, yeah, sugar. So
1: that's what I did. There's, I always say a recipe is half poetry and half science as well, yes. you know. So um, we kind of, you know, you taste. And the precision is really important. But I'm interested that you added the cloves and the cardamom. I'd like to try it. Oh, but yeah, then you did you add, p- still add the pistachios at the end? At oh, the yeah, top. yeah. I, I just mm. put the pistachios on top. Mm. I left out the
2: lemon and mm. the and the sugary Do you
1: bits, have but... cake for breakfast ever? Yeah,
2: really I have it.
1: not had cake yeah. for breakfast in a long yeah, time. It's very yes. Italian, you know. I would yeah. say Italians have their... Cakes in the morning they have their cakes for breakfast they have their ice creams on the street and then they have a coffee for dessert you know an espresso so there's always a cake a dry cake to have for breakfast
2: yeah no yeah. in South India it's really more just a little sambar of sort of lentils or rasam of lentils yeah. and spices and tomatoes and then some sort of steamed rice or lentil yeah. cake like an idli mm-hmm. or maybe a dosa.
1: So let's talk about that. Your eyes light up when you start talking about cloves and cardamom and and lentils for breakfast in South India. Tell me about this India thing.
2: Yeah, so my story is pretty straightforward in some ways for, you know, that period of sort of American Indian immigrants. So as soon as, maybe people don't know this, as soon as the Civil Rights Act was passed, there was also a change in the immigration law. So people from the I didn't being know around that. place of origin, I mean, the,
1: Amer- the American and yeah, the Britain. restrictions on
2: place of origin, and so After, it was you know yeah. veiled, as you know. Yeah, um, and so as soon as that was lifted, my parents were one of the first to come over to the U.S., become graduate students, became academics.
1: And um, what do you think that was like for them? Do you think that was? Oh, big...
2: I think, I think if you and I, Ruthie, were go to Mars, it would probably be less yeah. of a leap than it was for yeah. them. So yeah. they both came on scholarships from sort of rural really semi-rural India. To study what? Both in the sciences. Mm-hmm. So my father in uh, the mathematical sort of area mm. and my, my mother in molecular biology. So I think that was a huge leap for mm. them. And I think I'm consistently sort of astonished mm. by their bravery mm. and uh, the sort of almost gallantry with which they mm. sort of went out with open curiosity to mm. the world. And it's something I, I wish, I think we have a lot of in the world and I mm. would love to see us all tap into that a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. because it's only good for everyone. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I think it was something they did with great gusto yeah. and were very happy, but they were also very happy to go back. They were and happy. I th- yeah. And shortly after my sister was born, when I was about six, we moved back to India. Uh, oh, they wanted to go back. Yeah. Uh, did they
1: meet in India and come together? They or actually did they had they an arranged
2: marriage. They met in, mm-hmm. in India, moved over here together, and then uh, we moved back, when, as I said, when I was six or so. We moved to Bangalore. Yeah. And that's where, so where they came from? They came from just south of Goa, so Mm. they come from the coast, the Malabar coast, which Mm. is a haven of all of the spice growing, as you might know. And so that's very much, yeah, very much. And I come from a family of sort of academic social Mm. workers. I'm really the black sheep of the family, someone Mm -hmm. who went into The vulgar world of commerce, uh, and never got a PhD. Uh, So that's where I grew up in 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 Bangalore, and that was very much part of my life until, especially until seventeen, when I came back to. then you came back to the US, and then went off to went off to school. And what so. was
1: home life like? Who cook? Did your mother work and your father work? Did you have- Both of my
2: parents worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't, I'd, I'd say neither one of them was really sort of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. affiliated with the stove in any particularly mm-hmm. distinguished mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But uh, we got along. My grandmother was, my maternal grandmother in particular, a great cook. And so she, you know, showed me if she always had something pickling. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like really? anything could be Pickles. pickled. I think at one point she even pickled banana skins, believe it or not. Skins.
1: Interesting. It well, wasn't like, successful, but yeah, she she you tried. Know, she, tried. Yeah.
2: she pickled hibiscus flowers. Wow. She pickled gooseberries. Did your grandmother live near you? Was she in the house? She didn't. We lived in Bangalore. She lived on the coast, but she would oh. come visit. Do
1: you but, remember the meals you had around the table in Bangalore when you were between 6 and 17? Would you go to school, come home,
2: sit we down to had So in India, there's this whole, you take your little, Tiffin carrier, as they call it, mm-hmm. with these stacked little stainless steel boxes. Mm-hmm. And they all have there's a, it's a whole sort of bento box ritual mm-hmm. to it. And mm-hmm. so all these Ayurvedic traditions around how many sours and how many sweets and oh. everything sort of architected. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I took, took my little tip and mine was a bit less polished. But I'd take my little lunchbox to school and I remember that, the taste of sort of yogurt and rice and pickles. and well, What would you
1: have for breakfast?
2: Usually just a very simple, you know, yeah, like sir- a dosa and some yeah. lentils or something like that. Uh, and then you'd come home to very simple supper, so yeah. it was it wasn't anything primarily vegetarian, right? Yeah. So it was, it was it was that's. But I have it, it was delicious because the food was very fresh, and yeah. you know this, Ruthie.
1: Yeah, I do. You know I what do. that's all about. And so
2: going to the vegetables bazaar and are
1: the markets, what are the markets like in India, I've never into a market the
2: markets were overwhelming i mean sort of everything is there but you had big piles of just endless varieties of chilies Mm. or endless varieties of greens Mm. i was recently in mexico and and the markets there very much reminded me of of, of india uh and you know you know what to do and you know to you learn how to buy things it's Mm. it's nothing is shrink-wrapped you you can choose right so you think you snap the the stem of the gooseberry—you know what to look for—and it's that I miss that very much. There was sort of sensuality in shopping that you Is, sometimes did. You don't go have with it.
1: your mother, or your grandmother, or was you?
2: I'd go with my grandmother, or mm-hmm. you know, our, our uh, uh, the, the lady who helped out with the house, and yeah. Did you
1: love food even then? I always think of you as such a lover of food. And we talk about food. You tell you make food. You well, we go to the. I did love food. Did did you know as a child that you?
2: Yes, yes. I still remember there was a season for the when the Kashmiri apple juice season would arrive, and that would be actually affordable. And so you know, I remember things like that. Like I have a very strong memory, memory for these little flavors and smells and Indian street food as well. And Indian street food is really just a spectacular celebration. I think of humanity. It's just great.
1: Did your parents take you to restaurants in Bangalore?
2: Was that something you did? At that time, the 80s, I'd say it was rare. I mean, Indian food was very much about home cooking. And I think you'll probably have heard that from Mm. others. It's less about a restaurant. I think Mm. that fine dining idea Mm. is something that's developed more recently, which is Mm -hmm. the growing prosperity of India Mm -hmm. and a rising middle Mm -hmm. class. And I think it's fantastic. I mean, there are Indian cooks and chefs and doing amazing things in India right now. Um, but that was less of the story, at yeah. least of my specific, <laughs> so. Yeah, was there fish in Bangalore? Did you
1: have fish? Very
2: or? good fish. Yeah. yeah. There was really good fish. Less so meat, but more, it was more around fresh fish, particularly in the coast, the Malabar coast. When I we went to visit my, my grandmother there, that was. Uh,
1: did you cook with your grandmother or your mother? I did. did actually she actually, actually had fish? an
2: open fire stove. So it was a very, you know, it, it was really wonderful to have that very, I mean, kind of like what you have actually. Yeah. It was just smaller. And, uh, yeah, she would cook all kinds of seafood on there and. Yeah. All the pickles and the chutneys I mentioned. Yeah. And so no, it was wonderful. So uh, you would participate? Right? Yeah, all yeah. was great. But then did we then we had to or move were back. Were you
1: the cook of the family? Were you the I didn't
2: really cook in childhood as much. It was yeah. more something I observed, and it's really yeah. something that started once I went to university.
1: When you went back to university, did you all go, or was it just you? You went by yourself.
2: I went by myself. Uh, I was at Harvard, and there wasn't much opportunity for cooking there. But oh. you know, it, that was more just taking whatever was offered to you, and the. Dining hall. Was that and a kind of sh- was Adding it? hot sauce was to that, it. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> was that shocking? Was that a big adjustment going from a home it was, where you it had was this incredible adjustment. food and markets and smells and memories and your grandmother to Harvard where you lived in a dorm and... Food was.
2: It was. I mean, I think the arc after that was, though, very much about, I mean, you're so overwhelmed with sort of the intellectual mm-hmm. curiosity of that time, right? You don't think about yeah. food as much. You're, you're absorbing so much in you in terms of relationships and yeah. friendships yeah. and ideas and people. And I was just, you know, becoming a young woman with all the sort yeah. of uncertainties. And I mean, it was it was an interesting time. It was almost like three failures in a funeral. It was like yeah. and, and literally the arc of that until now was very much around, you know, Failing, failing better, learning, and then iterating from there in terms of just, you know, developing Mm. in life, going a little bit away from food into philosophy. But I do think it's very important to make mistakes and and learn and fail a bit in life because they're all very intertwined. And I I differentiate between failures of hubris and failures of curiosity. And I think failures of curiosity where you're just open-mindedly trying to try something and maybe you mess it up. I think those are perfectly fine. Yeah. I think that's how you learn and you move on as long as you're aware of it. And that's what I meant by the three failures and a funeral in the sense that I think my first class at Harvard is one I actually did very poorly on. But it was also the class that was most impactful. What and was it was a class that the great philosopher John Rawls taught. Mm-hmm. And it was on developing the ideal society. So the, what we all had to do as a class was get together and decide What would the ideal society be if you didn't know anything about your status in that world? If you didn't know what your race would be, your gender, Mm -hmm. what you'd be endowed with in terms of talents or wealth, what kind of society would you create? And ultimately, what we decided is, since we don't know what we would be, we'd want a society where the worst person off would be not just okay, but Mm -hmm. actually flourish, because Mm -hmm. we could well be that person. So it wasn't just about getting, you know, sort of a pittance and that really transformed. I had a very utilitarian, very rational view of the world. And it was my way of sort of coping, I think, also growing yeah. up in a very poor country. But that really made sense mm-hmm. to me finally. So even though the class, technically, in terms of my transcript, was yeah. a failure, I'd argue in terms of just how, what it did to my life and my mindset and what I did eventually later, trying to do a bit of good in the world, uh, was, was transformative. Yeah. So that was probably failure number one. I think then that led to... Um, I met the people I met in that class led then to my first job, actually, uh, which I that? ended up getting fired from pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Failure number Thank two. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a really I like exciting podcast. Three, yeah. Let's just go <laughs> yeah, into I it. I like it, yeah. Um, no, I'm just thinking about it in a way that kind of is how it, how it laid out. Yeah. Um, and that was working for, working in Russia during the privatization program in 1991. Where? In Moscow. In Moscow. Yeah. And I there briefly and then later in, in, in Mongolia. And the World Bank really was—I was really working for them through mm. Jeffrey Sachs, a professor at the time at Harvard. And what was really interesting was that we went there with such high hopes, mm. and it's very relevant to the new headlines we're was seeing that right now. Nineteen ninety-one. So August of nineteen ninety-one mm. is actually when the coup happened yeah, in yeah. Moscow with Yeltsin, just and then December of that year with the Soviet Union ceased to exist. It all happened very quickly. And, and you I, were there. I was there. You were there. Yeah, we were there. And uh, that was something we went in with high hopes, and then just realized. Uh, this is mm. this is probably not going to work, and ultimately, that you got was that right.
1: Right away, you got that right away. I don't think right.
2: I got that right away. Actually, I yeah. I'm sort of give myself more credit than I deserve. But that's something I think now, I looking back, was fairly clear, and that's mm-hmm. something we should have we should have addressed as a as a broader mm. policy matter, and not mm. obviously as a twenty one year old who was yeah. there for their first job. But that then I ended up in Mongolia working there as well. But I look back on that period of just such high, bigger, you know, much obviously bigger issue than just me and my journey was just this whole issue of how again failures of hubris i would mm-hmm. argue where we think we have all the answers but we're not listening to the local community mm-hmm. and you know we we can we can as a result of that mess up and my first big philanthropic project was really around sanitation and um subsidized toilets for mm-hmm. you know uh, poorer populations across south asia so that was in south asia that was south asia that was my first effort you know I right. first worked in my first fund It was working right. really well right. uh, and wanted to give back right away. I didn't want to sit around and mm. wait until I was some sort of elderly mm. person. And when I did that, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. We've got all the answers. This mm. is going to be about, you know, better sanitation for all. And, you know, that didn't really work either. It was a complete... I think when we visited some of these toilets that we'd subsidized, most of them were being used as chicken coops. <laughs> and why, why, why was that, though? One was around, you know, might be lack of plumbing, mm. and the other was mm. maybe around just cultural habits and what was appropriate what wasn't appropriate so longer story for maybe a a different podcast Mm -hmm. but the bottom line is that was sort of another failure I'd argue more of curiosity and and, and hope uh, but also a bit of hubris there where I just stepped back and realized okay there's it's important now to to really listen and that leads me sadly I think in some ways to the funeral which is Paul Farmer, whom I think you know Mm. as well, a really dear friend and Mm. a great uh, innovator in terms Mm. of how public health could be delivered. And he and I worked together pretty extensively on a variety of projects that he did with many other uh, Mm. clients. He was a real mentor to Mm. me in terms of really listening to the community, understanding grounds up. And so that's what I do. And that's what I do. Whether I do it now as someone learning to cook or someone learning to gather friends or someone learning to be a better investor um, or philanthropist, that's... You very listen. much about listening to what's happening yeah, around listening. the ground and, yeah. and observing rather than assuming. Yeah, I
1: know what you're doing. Everybody Do you remember happen. the food in Moscow that you ate? Going oh, back to yes, food.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Forget I remember the food the, in Moscow. the, uh, the poker. What was there it There wasn't like? much to eat, but there was a good oh. borscht every now and then. Yeah. There was, you know, a couple of solid dumplings, very solid dumplings. Yeah, so. <laughs> Mongolia was great. That's where I had my first fermented mare's milk. Which What was that like? It's like sour milk, that's yeah. what you would expect. And then there was a lot of sort of lamb mutton gristle, and mm. that was sort of it. Mm. That was pretty grim.
1: Was it an urban context you were in, or was there,
2: was there were you? We we're, were traveling around a lot. It's yeah. a large, at that time, certainly, it was a largely, it still is, largely yeah. sort of rural nomadic society and Have you culture. been back to Russia since? I haven't been back to Mongolia, but I've been back to Russia. And
1: the big change? From oh 91. yeah, yeah, caviar,
2: yeah, yeah the lower if you can afford it. Lots of fancy stuff now.
1: Yeah, we went in. I think nineteen. It was when Richard was chairman of the Tate, and we were trying to get a, an exchange with um, the Hermitage for the and the Pushkin for. They have great Matisse's and they were at the Hermitage, we were trying to exchange turners for a show, and it was, and it was you know, I went wanting to love it, but it, is, it was complex, and, and certainly for us. I haven't been back since then, so I've missed the whole wealth and the restaurants and everything else. It's good cuisine, that, wasn't it? Sean and I are here, and we're talking about that pistachio cake. I think it's a very delicious cake it's a cake that you can have any time of day very, in that Italian way but there's something about this cake and of course it's the pistachios which I always associate with Lebanon which feels almost Middle Eastern to me the green color, the nuts and the almonds it, it just always feels like something that you might not have in Italy but you might have as part of a meal you were having from Beirut for instance what do you think about this cake? do you mm. like it? It's definitely a breakfast cake hmm. in my house. It's yeah. really yummy, but it's tricky to make in volume. We often have problems with it being oily because the nuts can be... I, don't, I mean, I guess nuts are yeah. oily, aren't they? It isn't hard to make, but you have no. to get it right. Yeah, it's all in the, in the fineness of the grinding of the almonds and the pistachios. And actually, sometimes we put a bit of flour, There's some of the flour through the nuts when it gets mm. folded in, to sort of hold the nuts, to stop them being, to sort of mop up some of the kind of oils. But I love this cake, and I cannot remember how we came up with it. I have a very strong recollection of just making it over and over and over again till we got it right. Did you know the River Cafe has a shop it's full of our favorite foods and designs. We have cookbooks, linen napkins, kitchenware, tote bags with our signatures, glasses from Venice, chocolates from Turin. You can find us right next door to the River Cafe in London or online at shoptherivercafe.co.uk. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie. So we're sitting here in the River Cafe, it's about 7.30, and we're about to go and have dinner. And of course I chose the quietest place in the whole of Thames Wharf to have a studio, except forgetting that some nights we have Sylvia's, which is downstairs, our private dining room. And so the noise in the background is uh, a lot of people, probably 50, having celebrating something, and Sylvia's having a drink. So that's the background noise. So I hope you can all hear us your passion for cooking you were involved in india with your grandmother and your your mother a bit with harvard really not at all and then russia you know you were working and eating a bit when did you then decide that how
2: important cooking and food was to you or was it a decision
1: did it happen i think yeah. it
2: came with the birth of my children you know mm. i think i really started thinking having spending time and allocating time to not just Enjoying food, mm. obviously, but to really thinking about cooking again mm. in a way I hadn't in a long, long time, and really returned to my they, my children. Some way brought me back to my own childhood in the sense mm. of joy I got mm. out of food, and so I started very early with them. You know, giving them all kinds of adventurous things. And I was 30 when I had Lucas, mm. uh, my older son, and 32 when I had, or just under 32, actually, when I had Rowan, my younger one. So I was, you know, a relatively young mother. I just we just set up. Uh, Lone Pine at the time in 98 so that was you know really relatively early on as well in my career mm-hmm. uh, so it was both a young working woman and a mother how um, did you
1: come to England
2: we came to England Oliver and I uh early in 99 uh because of his work and also because I was setting up, you know, our little office here in London. So it was sort of a combination of factors. And we did stayed, you, we, stayed you, we thought we'd stay here very briefly, but we ended up staying here for yeah. you know, 20 did years.
1: Did you cook then? Did you, before you had children? Did you entertain or?
2: I entertained. I definitely loved cooking. But it was something I did yeah. with very much driven by recipes. Yeah. And so I think what really changed was this idea of thinking, going back to my childhood in sense as a, Sometimes constraints are good. Constraints mm. force yeah. you to oh, be yeah, creative. 100%. So my big constraint was time, mm. and not being able to shop for every single ingredient on some obscure mm. recipe list, mm. which is what I mm. did a bit more of when I entertained mm. very formally for people on a Friday night, mm. or, you know, after work. Now it was you've got to get delicious things on. You want your children to enjoy it, yeah. and so I would just say, okay, the recipe requires a lemon. You know what? Let's just try tamarind. That's mm-hmm. sour too. Mm-hmm. Let's just see what that does. And so this mixing of different ingredients different flavors and combining them, even though it might be completely different, Mm -hmm. specific things from the recipe, as I just mentioned with your Mm. beautiful pistachio cake, that's something. And actually, the pistachio cake was something I started very early with them, which is why I have such great memories of it.
1: That was in the easy book.
2: I loved it, because what was so great about that book and how you constructed that book, Ruthie, was how you thought about the ingredients and really foregrounding the ingredients. And that gave me courage as a cook to really think about the ingredients as something that could be malleable, mm. you know, like people are malleable. Mm-hmm. Recipes can be malleable. And I, that's, I had so much fun with that book. Yeah. It's such a, oh, such it's a nice great
1: book. We, I remember when we did it, we also thought that what we wanted to do, what, what's hard about cooking is, you know, shopping and then the preparation and then, you know, the presentation, if you will. But the shopping, we tried to say, okay, we're going to give you a shopping list. You know, we did the ingredients almost like a shopping list, so you could almost you know, tear it out or write it down a photocopy in those days probably and take it and then you could go to the shop with the with the ingredients and they were all we tried to do ingredients that were accessible because shopping is a real pain I mean the restrictions of a working woman to having or man to have to go to something on the way home from work it's painful when you want to go home and see your kids and help them with
2: their homework you know and then you have to stop and shop and also I think What it brought me, that book was really helpful because it also brought me back, not just because of the ease, it took some of the ease out of the -hmm. the ingredients and searching for those. It also started making me think back to what my grandmother had told me, which is thinking in proportions, right? So not rigidly in terms of quantities, but really ratios of flavors. And that's really, I think, what turned me from someone who just followed a recipe into someone who was really a proper cook, who really saw cooking as a creative activity and outlet and something that... It became a passion uh, in a way that... And so I owe a lot to you in that book.
1: But does the Indian influence... Do you, like you use cardamom and cloves and cinnamon for the cake. Does that... So, does something you inherently sort of go for is to see how you can make this recipe more exotic by doing something from your childhood or that you remember? Yes.
2: I mean, my sister gave me... I don't know if you've seen these big spice dabas that they have in India where you have mm-hmm. sort of little trays and a big... Oh yeah, it's a palette. It's like just like a paint palette, and that's how I think about spices. Mm -hmm. It's just how to combine them, and you know, my first gift to my partner David was really all was just a big Uh trays of these spices and how you could combine them. And I think it's just such a just enormously fun. And
1: you go to India, or you eat food from. A different culture. It does make you think how boring a lot of our food is. You know, it's just—it's delicious and it's interesting, and the olive oil is strong. But then, that kind of assault on these senses that you have from— What's from your favorite culture. Indian
2: food? What have you? Um, I like there?
1: southern Indian. But well, we, I've only been to India twice. We went once to the Jaipur, out of you know the Delhi part, which I actually really loved. Just we took the children, and then when we went to the south, we went to Goa and down to Kerala and. I was very attracted to that food. It's um, very perfumey, interesting, light, fishy, and I like that very much. It's more sort of coconut
2: milk often as a base. It's a little lighter.
1: And when was the last time you were in India? I was in India
2: in February of this year, actually. Yes, yeah. Where did you go? Uh, I went to Bombay, Mumbai, as we're supposed to call it now. Well, I usually go there into the south, to to Bangalore, Mm -hmm. and... It was again. You, you go there, and yes, it's about work and meeting people and seeing friends. But yes, it's almost yeah. always about food as well. Well,
1: you yeah. asked me what was my the food that I love from India. What is the food that you love most? Is there a region that you particularly like? Or?
2: I think, like you, Ruthie, I like South Indian cuisine. But I think there's some amazing foods, obviously, yeah. from from the north that I sort yeah. of think of as you know just indulgences—the breads yeah. and the, the, the use of tandoor and how that yeah. how that has come about. But in terms of the, or the Lucknow has this amazing cuisine, the Dumfokht, you know, the, the, the seal, the pots and clay, and there's amazing stuff there. But what I really love is that South Indian food, in terms of the emphasis on spices and the mix of different kinds of spices, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, it's like a burst of yeah. fla- different flavors, all layered. And I love that idea of layering, uh, whether it's music or yeah. literature or cooking. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't just be a one-note yeah. wonder of a thing. And so that's that's what I really love about that cuisine, yeah. whether it's from Kerala or Tamil Nadu or And it's or so Karnataka. different region to region, isn't it? Yeah,
1: is it? It's it's very like, different region to region. region yeah. Yes,
2: even within the South, I think people yeah. forget, but there are multiple layers and regions to that. But that's that's the food I think about when I think, okay, how do I, how yeah. do I recreate that? Yeah. yeah, that's that sense of feeling.
1: I really love to think of you as, as a cook because of my friends, you know, I have friends who cook, I have friends who give dinner parties, and they're great, and they, they have friends with gardens, I have friends with vegetables, but you, you have a farm, so should we talk about the farm where, where we had the apple juice and the 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 jams and the chutneys and everything, so tell us about that, that farm. Yes,
2: yeah, so the idea behind that, I work with Mark, who's our gardener there really closely, to just grow the kinds of things that we wouldn't be able to find normally otherwise. And we ended up also doing a lot of, you know, heritage native species that you wouldn't normally find otherwise that are sort of going, dying out. Right. Um, well, one thing we decided to do is start growing the sort of rare type of medlar fruit mm-hmm. um, and some really interesting odd plums, and, yeah,
1: yeah. all those
2: kinds of yeah. things. And then I realized that there are all of these Meddlers that are native to Sussex that mm-hmm. apparently they're called all kinds of rude names because mm. I think the local name for the meddler fruit we grew was called, like, monkey's ass or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all kinds of, like, bizarre names that I just loved. And so we had a bunch of those, just a variety of those for one season, mm. and they just stank to high heaven. Yeah. I really... Har- yeah. <laughs> but I pickled them, as I did. That Can was, like, pick- my... Yeah, when in pies. doubt, pickle. Yeah, pickle, yeah. So yeah. Those, those were modestly in, improved by that yeah. and then we had a whole spate of different kinds of um flowers you know mm-hmm. just local flowers some edible flowers is it is it
1: organic and sustainable as i just got? it is of, organic ha- what, yeah did you change the soil or did you how do you
2: it was very chalky as uh-huh. it's in Southdown, so it's very chalky so yes it had to be improved just with our local just vegetable waste we composted yeah. and stuff we brought in um mm. A lot of fish blood, apparently, which was brought in for... The, yeah, all, 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 all those... We compost soil over, whatever, 12, 15 years, and it became yeah. just much better over time. And what do you risky. have
1: now that you grow? What is your major... Similar, part?
2: we try new, new different things. We still have the meddlers, by the way, mm. in case you're interested. Okay. And, um, yeah, still the plums, still the apples, as you know. Mostly fruit, Vegetables? Lots of kale yeah. and chard and yeah. different kinds of well, varieties you did of herbs. That crispy, the crispy uh, kale, yeah. Kale is exactly. So good. exactly. Yeah. Tell us how you exactly. make that. That's a good one. That's you take we make a hoisin sauce with the plums that we grow, and then we mix in a little bit of cashew nut butter, believe it or not, and then a bit of soy sauce and mirin, and a bit of chili and mm. just put in the dehydrator and there you go.
1: How long have you had the farm?
2: oh gosh since like 20, 2005 or something yeah. like that yeah, yeah it's where really my children grew up in a way yeah. it's very much part of my love of sort yeah. of Britain and yeah. everything we've we've learned here um, so yeah that's that's what it is and now what I'm trying to do there is actually encourage more women gardeners because mm-hmm. I think it's such a great profession and such mm-hmm. a great part of yeah. England's heritage so we've been encouraging more sort of interns there under mark uh, mm-hmm. who are sort of from the local uh, horticultural College so things like that that's been great and just do having animals? that be part of the food no we don't have animals yeah. uh, except for bees we do have bees
1: yeah do you make it the honey yeah how is that
2: oh that's sort of alternate cycles of joy and heartbreak because yeah. you know some, the, it's, it's tricky sometimes with the weather and you know so we've had to one thing I've learned is you have to keep the beehives really high up uh-huh. and it's we were just way too close to the ground I think that's a big mistake that Did early beekeepers make Yeah, yeah so they don't like the damp
1: they don't like the name.
2: Well, if you think about it, naturally, they put their yeah, hives way you? high up. Why, would, yeah. why, why am yeah, I, you yeah. know, so.
1: And do you, do you flavor your honey? Do you do different types of honey, or?
2: My son, younger son, encouraged me to start putting chili into the honey, which okay. has been a great success.
0: Hmm.
1: If you like listening to Ruthie's Table 4, would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest
2: paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
0: This is Uncanny USA.
2: searching for something extreme check out skating snowboarding and more on fuel tv plus the global home of action sports and find crowd-pleasing bops on iheart radio's hit nation playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your xfinity voice remote
1: you've mentioned david yes and that's david Byrne, and you brought him to meet me oh. In the River Cafe a few years ago, some years ago, because he was just intrigued about how, as many people, how a restaurant works. I'm intrigued to know how a fund works, and I'm intrigued to know how being somebody from content and producers work. But it really is interesting to people. I think how do, how does the mozzarella arrive at the same time as the pasta and how do you order? And he was very he, he was seemed to me much more interested almost as much as how we write the menu we do write the menu in a kind of unique way, which is that we do it every differently for every meal. But what is his interest in, in food is he, is he, he
2: likes just very similar to me I think it's mm-hmm. just a wonderful thing it's, it's food as a form of love mm-hmm. you know you can, you, that's what you offer your friends yeah. and your family uh, and it's a creative act as well mm-hmm. and I think one thing yes the, the, that was actually a really fantastic yeah. day it was really yeah. great to just come time. here and yeah, put, to put the menu together yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and sort of see how everything was yeah. put together in this sort of yeah. magical place
0: Hey Ruthie. Hi Zad. Here we are. We've spoken to lots of artists and uh, actors and musicians, and you sort of see a logical um, journey from their creative work they do in the studio to their work in the kitchen. We haven't spoken to that many business people who have this passion for cooking, and I wonder if that's us being now reminded, whether that you are quite unique in that in that sense.
2: I think that. Well, I think, I'm sure there are many business people who love cooking because I, I, I firmly believe that business is a creative activity when done well. I think any, when I define creative activity as connecting different areas in fresh and new ways, and that if you're good at pretty much anything, you have to think creatively no matter what it is. And as a result of that, I don't necessarily see the dichotomy maybe as much as might otherwise seem from, from the outside. And I also think if you're someone who's a philanthropist and wants to do well, particularly in the public health area, thinking about the business of food and the public health aspects of food and the creative aspects of food are actually quite intertwined in some really interesting ways. I mean, one thing I think a lot about, and I don't know if this is s- statistic you all of you knew, but one thing I was sent was a introduction of high fructose corn syrup into the American food industry. It was 1970. Mm-hmm. And back then, the obesity rate was relatively de minimis. And you progress that to 1990 and high fructose corn syrup is half of all sugar yeah, used. I mean, and now 40% is. is obesity rate. So that sort of the business of food and how that has made food, processed food at least, much more actually addictive. And there's some great books on yeah. this. Moss has written a great book called Hooked on This. And you lead that into the public health aspects of what that's led to. I think about that a lot. So I think about food as really just such a core aspect of our society and cultural identities.
1: It tells you about a culture. It tells you about yeah, society. It, does. it tells you about a city. I always say go to the market the first time you get to a city because it tells you. It tells concerned. you everything.
2: The one thing that actually in food that Dave and I learned a lot about was just how the brain processes food, which is interesting mm. for Tell you me. as well, which is we did this project called Theatre of the Mind. We wrote mm. this theatre piece together that ended up running in Denver and running a few other cities. And as part of that, one thing we learned is how the brain creates these illusions around taste Mm -hmm. and have you ever heard of this west african miracle berry Mm -hmm. so david told me about it actually i've heard heard about it first from him so it's a west african berry it's a little bush about two meters high it has these olive shaped little red berries Mm -hmm. and you chew on it It just tastes quite normal and it binds to the sweet receptors in your tongue and anytime you eat anything sour it activates the sweet receptors so you get this burst of Mm -hmm. sugar in your mouth so you literally you're chewing on a lemon forever
1: I mean, for just temporarily, yeah. just
2: until it lasts a couple yeah, minutes. But you chew oh, on a you a can chew on a lemon, oh, okay. and it literally tastes oh, okay. like it okay. tastes like a you know, like a sundae, ice cream wow. sundae, and it's, amazing. Yeah. it's a it's yeah. this crazy kind of yeah. experience. So we put that into our theater piece. It was an yeah. immersive theater piece that yeah. people went through, and people start screaming because <laughs> you're so, such an intimate S- part of your sense, yeah. you know, your sensory sure. system to have sure. this like the lemon Suddenly is something sweet yeah. yeah yeah and so there are all kinds of little that's okay well we were talking about
1: like um your immersive play and, and i was talking to Willem. you were going to ask
0: yeah well, i just was interested because something that always comes up on the podcast is uh, ruthie says food is uh food is memory and obviously there's so much a connection between taste and smell and do you think like our connection with food and memory is as strong as we think it is or do you think that it's intangible and changes with time? And...
2: I think memories are definitely malleable. I mean, that's not me speaking. That's just, you know, what we've learned over the years. And I think we should think about our brains not as direct processors of senses out there. We construct the world every time we look at the world. So what we see is not a specific radio frequency. What we see is really something our brain is constructed as an image. Um, and there are all kinds of evidence for that. For example, we don't see the blind spots in our in our eyes. We just paper them over. Um, So our brain constructs a world. And I think that's taste is part of that. And I think every time we remember something, since our brain is really about learning, it's not really about being a a photocopier, right? What's use is that evolutionarily speaking. Since our brain is a learning engine, we revise the memories as we come along to suit what is best for us and to update them based upon what we've learned since that memory was initially formed. And so I think memories are infinitely malleable as a result and there's a lot of really interesting research on that and also how false memories can be ascribed to people. There's been interesting research on that as well. So I think one thing we learned about with all of our research when David and I went to labs to construct the theater of the mind uh, immersive theater piece that you talked about a lot of it was around how memory is really malleable and in a way that's really good. So people can go through life and they're not stuck You know, there's always a possibility of change, which I really fundamentally see as a hopeful thing that we can evolve and move on uh, from from memories in the past. So, yes, I do think it's malleable to answer your question.
1: um, Certainly talking about people's memories here, and I say that, as Willem said, that food is memory, and memory is food. Many people's memories come back when they start talking about the food. I've had just in the interviews we've done, people say, oh, my God, I never... I didn't remember that until I started talking about my father, when he divorced my mother and I was eight, that suddenly he started cooking because he wanted us to know that things, you know, that he could do that, you know, as an expression of his love. And mel brooks at age 98 remembering he says unless it's a malleable memory <laughs> that he remembers the name of the woman who cooked him his first pasta when he was eight so 90 years ago he can remember her name because the food he can't remember the person who taught him to tie his shoes but he can remember somebody who taught him to to make a pasta and 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 then the memories of sad memories somebody making something for you they died, or you know, somebody wanted to eat something, you know, but as they were dying, and um, it is, you know, yeah, it's all to do with. I mean, I'm sure there are other smells probably bring back memories, and pain brings back memories, but food. Do you think it does? I What's
2: think hard? you're absolutely right, Ruthie. It mm. really, it really does. I think a lot about sort of my favorite foods, and 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 what I do when I'm trying to. we create some of them some of them are not even ones that were Mm -hmm. in a recipe they're just ones I remember having Mm -hmm. had or Mm -hmm. maybe it was at a restaurant such as yours Mm -hmm. or maybe it was But you're so generous with your recipes but maybe it was was something that my grandmother and aunt Mm -hmm. cooked for me um or yeah, and I, and and those are the re- those are the memories I'm trying to recreate yeah. you know, in, in, in my kitchen. And you were saying your children
1: and your mother, what is and that connection? Is it a connection for them? And it's your a connection mother? for them as well. Yes. Yeah, it's very much okay, of, you're yeah. coming
2: over. What would you like to eat? It's okay. <laughs> a feeling.
1: And so going to I suppose winding to the end, we would say if you needed to reach for some food, my friend, beautiful friend Mala, for comfort and you wanted something to eat, is there something you would go for?
2: Yes. I mean I think of comfort is more a sense of of love or maybe even Mm -hmm. joy and we all need that Mm -hmm. right I mean I I certainly do and I think of that as this very specific rosam that my grandmother used to make for me when I was ill Mm -hmm. and it was this sort of garlic rasam. and and to the question earlier about memory it was something I never could make and I never quite figure out the exact flavors and this is a really interesting story and then someone told me about a woman who lived in Chennai Mm -hmm. uh, village in the south in, in, in Tamil Nadu and she, her mission in, in life among other things she was accomplished in many ways was to do a compilation of all of the pickle recipes and chutney recipes in in rasams in, in, in South India and so she literally systematically went through and she had the book and it had gone out of print. So I actually wrote her, and I got this little PDF in the mail. No. <laughs> her name is she, Usha Prabhakaran. She, 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 she literally, now she's she has it yeah, on Amazon, and there's one called 400 Pickles, and there's another one called 1,000 Yeah. And I could not recommend both of these oh. books more. And, and you can so write her, and she what, Whatsapps it to you. How would you
1: make it? How, this is, if this is food you go for, what, would you? Would it's, you make, it's very simple. You just, you just get, make
2: it with a little bit of turdal which is kind of lentil and you grind that up mm. with coriander and cumin and uh, you mix it up with essentially you almost make like a lentil stock yeah. lentil and spice yeah. stock and you add a bit of chili yeah mm. it's called um, the tadka where you put you mix in oil some mm. mustard seeds and a bit of chili and you then sprinkle it on top it's delicious mm. okay. and you know any cold you have will okay. be curious. yeah
1: take you I as well. guarantee it okay
2: I love you thank you love you too Ruthie thank you
0: Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomai Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers and it's produced by Willem Malensky. This episode was edited by Julia Johnson and mixed by Nigel Appleton. Our executive producers are Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. This episode had additional contributions by Sean Wynn-Owen. Thank you to everyone at the River Cafe.
1: It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's better, H E L P.com.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is
2: going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.